step one, listen. Step two, learn, and step three, activate. I like I like what we're talking about um, sort of adapting what we have. It's uh, understanding your ecosystem. Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Vine podcast. Today we have another roundtable, and today's topic is permaculture and climate change adapt adaptation. Um, so today we've got three great guests. Do you just want to introduce yourselves? Do you want to start, uh, Joe? Do you want to go first there? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Joe Petroni. I'm an architect. I my practice is called Perm Architecture, which uh, focuses on permaculture zone zero, uh, the home. Great, Christopher. Uh, my name is Christopher Nesbitt. I live in Belize, and um, I main focus is. Uh, agroforestry is a tool for food security, degraded land repair, uh, climate change mitigation, and also climate change adaption. Great. And Alan? Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks, Cormac. Yeah, my name is Alan. I'm originally from Uruguay in South America, living in San Jose, Costa Rica. I am a permaculture designer, educator, and installer of food forests. I collaborate with a with a company called Food Forest Abundance, and also uh, I have my own endeavor here in Costa Rica called Chispita Silvestres, where we bring permaculture and outdoor education to to the youth. I'm Cormac, the the host today and permaculture designer and uh, co-founder of Vine Permaculture, where we uh, try and teach people how to begin and start grow their own food. Uh so, climate change ad adaptation. Uh, Joe, you've just finished the course there recently. Do you want to just tell us about that as a as a starting point, maybe? Uh, sure. Uh, we just finished this um October the first beta cohort for a course that I've been building on Maven. It's in um both synchronous uh and asynchronous uh course, as in there's um both weekly meetings and uh, go at your own pace uh, content. And the topic is, uh, funnily enough, and thanks for inviting me, <laughs> uh, Climate Proof Your Home, the Homeowner's Guide to Climate Resilience. And so we focus um, this time less on new build and more on retrofit and specifically on adapting with low-tech and passive um, solutions. And of course, a lot of permaculture outside of the house solutions, uh, finding way to uh, to adapt to climate. Uh, Great. Uh, Christopher, you said you mentioned you were climate change adaption as well. What kind of stuff are you doing? Um, we're looking at sort of, um, right now we're, we're embarking on a project. We're working with some corn and beans farmers uh, up on the border uh, in what they call the adjacency zone, which is uh, basically refugees from Guatemala who um, were early adapters and wholehearted adapters of agrochemical technology. And they've now basically destroyed their farms uh, and their land, unable to produce maize or beans. And they took, they kind of discarded millennia of accumulated knowledge in uh, maize and beans production and, in favor of synthetic fertilizers. And uh, so we're, we're talking with them. They came to the farm last year and, and uh, we're basically working on ways to get them uh, to produce food for, particularly for animals, pigs, which are important in Maya communities, uh, using perennial staple trees, uh, like the, the trees in the Articarpus genus, like um uh, the bread nut, the breadfruit, and jackfruit, for example, as well as Ramon nut, which is uh, a, a also in the um, uh, Morais. It's it's related distantly uh, to the um, bread nut, um, and it's used by uh, primarily by Maya people as a staple food in famine times. And so we're basically trying to get people to work on creating food models that are not fragile. Great. Uh, we'll get back to this, by the way. Alan, you're, you're up next. Are, are you working on anything at the moment? Yeah, we, we, we're we just running some um, some workshops for the youth. We had recently one in, in Monteverde, and then we just had one in the in the French school here in Costa Rica in, in, the, in the in the city. Basically, it's all we you know we believe that 
we're kind of like this generation has robbed the kids a little bit the ability to to be part of nature or to connect with nature because of yeah just because of different things right uh you know if you talk to a parent normally they say that they don't want their kids to be outside because of safety because of uh um you know being getting dirty uh there's there's a bunch of there's a bunch of reasons the 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 way that the people live is different as well so there's not that many opportunities for kids to be outside and we think we believe that that disconnection with nature is what creates that you know then we we treat nature as something foreign and and not as something that we really need to for for existence basically for, for our survival and for our thriving. So we want to bring kids back because that's how our childhoods were, right? We were riding our bikes everywhere. It was it was safe. We were climbing on trees. Nobody really was like taking care of us. We were eating food from the trees and we want to bring that back to the kids. And um, and we see that the kids, kids are hungry for it. For example, we have kids that um, are you know, whenever we tell them like, okay, let's sit on the ground. They're like, no, the ground is dirty, you know? And then, you know, 20 minutes later, they're already, you know, getting their hands dirty, knees dirty, everything dirty. And they're like completely fine with it. So it's something that is like just ingrained in them, like a fear that that society has put put to them. And and now they're, when, when, they, when they're less free to be able to exchange with nature, they're, they're completely in it. So yeah, we're, we're seeing that uh, e- even parents that are afraid of nature, let's say, they really know that it's important that their kids connect with it. So, you know, we're creating a safe space for, for the youth to be able to do that. So that's where we're at. Great stuff. So I suppose we could start for adapting to climate change. Um, where would we start? Start at zone zero? Start at the, the, our structures we live in? Where would you recommend we start then, Joe, if we were going from the house out? Uh, so you, your course covers like retrofitting it. What would be the few basic steps we could take? Yeah, it was very interesting when we took this first beta cohort that uh, people seemed to also get a better understanding not only of their house but also of their uh, of their surroundings. And it's it was really nice. We sort of structured it as we went along in a sort of co creative way, and the structure that arose from this was. Step one, listen, step two, learn, and step three, activate. And the three, there's three scales to each of the listen and activate modules. There's the bioregion, listen to your bioregion, listen to your land, and then listen to your house. And then when you activate, when we started the activate module, we went the other way around. So we started by activating your house, which is the, uh, the place where we thought we'd figured that you have the most impact um and leverage and then the land uh so how can you use uh permaculture principles and passive solar principles and other bioclimatics to to help protect your home and then go really outside into the bioregion and i think uh what's really interesting to understand uh as you we start thinking about this adaptation thing is that you sort of feel like it's the first steps are um self-preservating self-preservation acts and then as you think more and more about it you realize that because we're all connected and because we're all part of this greater um place uh, it's actually um a collective endeavor and it's actually bringing us back to uh to what i called the tribe as in bring back the community make activate together make make stuff with your neighbors um and then the other thing is that that uh that came out is that once you think about adaptation hard enough um you figure out that there's a lot of leverage points and actions that actually also mitigate climate change so rest restoring bio bioregions uh regenerating watersheds uh stuff like that not only helps um keep your house and greater neighborhood safer because it tampers weather events it 
helps in many ways to protect, but then it also actually has the greater uh, scope of really uh, mitigating climate change, you know, storing carbon and all that jazz. So it's really, it's really nice. I, I love Joe, what, what you said about, well, first, like, so you mentioned kind of like adaptation towards the end, not, not only kind of like on the climate side, but, you know, that takes, you know, it leads us towards that, but like adapting our lives a bit uh, to, to, to be able to also find those integration points, right? You talked about, you know, finding our own tribe. I'm, I'm really noticing that too, because at some point when, when the permaculture concept was sinking in in my life, I became also part of a narrative and also like, okay, yeah, I need to find like this perfect piece of land where I can practice permaculture, let's mm -hmm. say. Right. And now like my life, like I have three kids, my life is so hectic, you know, that like, even though that might be a reality at some point, like I'm, I'm much more bringing, bringing, I'm bringing back in like the permaculture concepts close to where I'm already operating. I'm like fully trying to integrate permaculture in what I'm already doing. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel of like, okay, I'm going to go create an eco community or, and so basically I'm actually finding the communities in which I'm already participating. And instead of being, you know, uh, a passive being of that community, I'm trying to uh, be an active person in that community. So for example, in, here in the French school, as I told you before, like a, a new head, uh, a new principal came to the school and I was like, well, I'm going to introduce myself and I'm going to tell them what are the things that are, you know, that, that I could bring to the community and that I would like to learn from the community as well. And she was really receptive and open. And from there, she already gave me a spot to, 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 to create a little food forest for the kids and with the kids. And that already started sparking yeah. other conversations with other people. And, and that starts like creating the, the knit, right. And, and, and when having a, a strong tribe, then there's so many other things that you can do. So it's, you know, sometimes we, 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 we put the lens or, or we create like different, different concepts, like create like a narrative. And we, we feel like there's like a utopic, like a utopian solution for, for, for topic, but it's actually like if we can act in our local area and yeah, retrofitting our, our places. So they're more um, connected to our, uh, ecosystems into our communities, I think is, is, is a great idea. So I love those concepts. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I like, I like what we're talking about, um, sort of adapting what we have, um, uh, worldwide, there's a lot of degraded land. It's like 950 million or one, one to 1.1 billion acres of degraded agricultural landscapes. And, uh, largely in, in, in Central America, as you probably see, uh, it's, uh, former degraded landscapes that, that were, uh, productive for a while, like banana um, or pineapple or papaya or citrus or cattle of monocultures that, that have at a time and at the end of that time, uh, they're no longer productive. And these actually offer great opportunity. I, I um, So I've been farming in one location for uh, it'll just short of 35 years in, in southern Belize. I bought a very old abandoned citrus and cattle farm because uh, I was uh, I like to say I was too stupid to know better uh, because it's true. I, I really didn't know what I was getting into. Just wanted to stay in Belize forever. And easiest way was to get, go into farming. Um, and uh, so what faced with that, I've had to like come up with strategies to repair degraded land and come up ways with ways to make it productive. And uh, so these opportunities that present ourselves uh, retrofitting instead of going out and, um, you know, building a brand new house, but retrofitting a, an existing house, or instead of uh, going clearing into the jungle um, or clearing into land that wasn't involved in agriculture previously, but taking agricultural land that's uh, that's sort of low hanging fruit, nobody really wants it, and um, uh, and working with it. And I think that's one of the challenges that permaculture uh, addresses really well. Um, but just applying the principles to the landscape, you'll come up with some pretty good design work. So. Yeah, but starting from scratch is so much easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, I think that's one of the, the nice things that presents us like that. One thing starting from scratch will be very expensive generally. And so retrofitting an existing system, whether it's a house or a piece of land or whatever, um, may be cheaper. And the, the 
have these minor points of um, leverage points where you can get really big results um, without putting a lot of energy into it. Uh, you kind of maximize your your minor leverage points and uh, amortize over time, you get good results. Um, I was reading somewhere recently that they they were talking about to, to retrofit an existing house to make it uh, thermally sound. Um, it was, this is for some an article I read about northern climate, keeping it warm, using less energy to maintain the heat, uh, that it was actually a lot cheaper to take an existing house. There were caveats uh, and fix it instead of building a brand new house. Uh, but it took thinking sort of outside of the box because, you know, these old houses were designed on on uh, just to use a lot of energy. So Yeah, oh, don't get and me started on that. <laughs> I, I figure I figure you probably will have a lot to say on that but I, I remember reading it and then hearing what you said I was like oh yeah you know there's a lot of that going around now it's, you know I felt very hip and in the know to uh to have read something about what you're talking about so yeah well it's as in as in permaculture or as in land with houses uh it's so important to listen to it to understand its potential and uh, ob observe and interact is one of the the and slow down <laughs> um, yeah. is is so important to find the actual solution or the actual point of point of leverage that can be so small if only you just yeah take it in and slow down and yeah the concept of, uh, of of finding the points of leverage i think is is great it's uh because it's you know the the least energy for the maximum output i think that's that's great like yeah i i i really like operate it like i understand the observe and interact and i'm applying it all the time but i i feel like i i i'm much better at almost like interacting and seeing the response and from there adapting that that's my modus operandi you know that that, that works for me so just like try, try something out and then from there see like how the ecosystem reacts and then from there ad adapt and continue that way and and from because if not I, I i create like a kind of like a paralysis by analysis situation for myself that i don't move forward at all and i think i think it happens for some reason too for some people too so just uh, words of encouragement for people to you know, if you feel stuck, just try something and see how, how you know, if you can get unstuck from, from there. Yeah, especially with living systems. Um, yeah, exactly. So anything, plants and people. Uh, houses, it's a bit more, like the time <laughs> yeah, scale is a... different. <laughs> I don't have that much experience with that. <laughs> like, try something, wait for a bit. So we, we have uh, Mike at... at... He's one of the co-founders as well here at Vine. And he actually moved from Philadelphia to Vermont. He was a he calls himself a climate migrant. Uh yeah. So as a bit drastic, but uh so if someone's worried about climate change and they're worried about getting themselves sorted and they want to use permaculture as a tool. So what we've got so far is Retro, try and retrofit where you are is a bit more is easier are we saying or cheaper more sensible than going out and moving somewhere and starting again well i think there isn't a one safe space like there there isn't a place that's going to be in 10 years time it's going to be just right and everything's going to be fine uh, it's, it's there's there's this misunderstanding about climate change as in it's warming um steadily but it's not it's just debalanced it's a loss of balance of the of this of the climate and so that mm -hmm. brings about not only this warming but this warming brings about serious extreme events um yes. so there isn't any place that's going to be better but there are a lot of places that right now are suffering much more yeah. Like Texas is getting like completely out of proportion, right? Temperature wise. Yeah. I'm just sticking to US right now because you gave this this example. Um 
so yeah um moving might be needed but then what we really need to do is sort this out yeah we, we've actually um i we just had the most brutal dry season last year and um i mean really brutal uh 20-year-old cacao trees that were really well established died uh we had uh, some fair amount of trees die in our in our agroforestry system, and um, and uh, then we had what was up until last week, uh, what I would call a really mild rainy season. We just didn't get the rain that we expect, and we where we we get uh, we get uh, let's see, we get over four meters of rain where I live uh, per year, and the majority of it falls from uh, uh, May or June through December. Uh, with heavy in July and August, and sometimes in October. Um, and this year, we just never got the kind of rain that we expect. I, I, I haven't been, I don't have a rain meter anymore. I'm, I'm much too lazy uh, and also too busy doing other things to do that. I used to keep records, uh, but I just know we're not getting enough. Luckily, this last week, um, like including today, uh, I, I woke up yesterday uh, to come to the north of Lisa. We're working on a vanilla project with some women on behalf of the government. Um, and we saw the rain coming and I could have left today. But this morning when I, uh, I, I get a phone call from the village saying the river is flooded. And I live on a river. I live up a river. But we only get there in a dugout canoe. Um, so, the, yeah, climate change is real. And, and it's really kind of scary because I, I spent basically my entire adult life working on planting trees based on a anticipatable weather pattern that's changing. Um, and uh, we're seeing climate refugees coming into Belize from Guatemala. The Western Highlands have been in drought for, for seven or eight years now, parts of it. And uh, so that that's absolutely terrifying. The one place I would say that, that yes, uh, it, may, it may get worse everywhere, it may not get worse everywhere. Anybody in, in lowland areas on the coast move move now because there's going to come a time when all of a sudden all this coastal cities are going to be in serious trouble and there's no plan for where to relocate those people so uh my own little tidbit of bummer for everybody today <laughs> so. well we try and focus on solutions um right. that's why because i think a lot of conversations around this just turn on the uh a doomsday event and then permaculture as a solution. I think it, it, if you follow permaculture, but you're practicing permaculture where you are and have been for years. How are you like, if you've lost trees there, how, how are you mitigating against it now? Uh, well, are I'm 57 you... years old. So I, I, I figure I probably have another eight years worth of work. And when I'm about 65, I'm going to find two trees that haven't died. I'm going to buy one hammock and um, I'm going to tie it up. And I'm going to read that big stack of books that sit and accuse me of not reading them. I might maybe even write one. Who knows? Uh, I just, but I'm, 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 I mean, I'm not ancient, but I'm, I'm towards the end of my productive lifespan. And, uh, and, but what worries me is I've got kids. I've, I've got grandkids. Uh, you know, I've got former students who are young adults now. And I, and I, I, I worry about them. I worry about the world that they inherited. I don't know what, what they're going to get. Um, so in the meantime, uh, one of the things is that we have found is while annual crops such as uh, beans and corn, for example, will fail uh, in half of Belize in 2019, the southern, northern half of Belize, rather, uh, the, the corn crop and the beans crop mostly failed uh, because of drought. Uh, and what we found was deep-rooted trees like the breadnut, the Articarpus comansi, uh, and the, the breadfruit Articarpus altilis or the um, jackfruit, which is Articarpus heterophylla, these were uh, affected. They had decreases in production, but they were deep rooted and able to access and still got production. And how do we get people? That's how do we get people to start doing that? Um, because it's not just that they're going to be productive in times of uh, soil moisture stress. Uh, they're also actively drawing down and retaining carbon in the landscape. Uh, and that's one of the things that we're, we're trying, 
that we're trying to work with farmers and convince people to do, uh, it's very, very hard because the, the two industries that are the most recalcitrant to change are, are both forestry and agriculture. And agroforestry kind of encompasses and, uh, both of them. And both foresters and uh, ag agronomists tend to bristle at the idea that the, the existing paradigm of uh, sort of cost of labor and inputs and capitalization over here versus kilograms per hectare times dollar value uh, per kilogram over here is not sustainable. Um, you know, there's got to be some other other factors in the consideration. So it's very, very hard. Um, so I guess I guess my main concern is that we're not we're not we're not moving fast enough to address it. Um, and I say this is somebody who's been talking about this for last 20 years. Also, a nice thing is the encouraging thing is this part of the conversation. Um, but we're hopefully inadequate in, in, in the amount of work that's getting done, uh, in part because it challenges the, the, the dominant uh, presumptions and, and the vested interests that benefit off of them. Yeah, that's a, I always think that <clears throat> the, we can't wait for other people to do it. We have to do it ourselves. Because if we wait around for people and government or whatever, they, they do these things, it'll, it'll be too late. So we have to start. It has to be a ground up thing. And that's part of the reason for this series is like, right, well, how can permaculture help people? So if you t take it back, so uh, just sort of in a practical sense. So we have the house, the home. Uh, so we have the home, we have get community. Uh is even planting plants, say, say a zone, if you're in zone six, planting things that are zone five, six, and seven, <laughs> to try and hedge your bets a bit and diversify. Uh, Alan, would that something that you would do in your design work? Yeah, for, for me, it's uh, for me, it's uh, understanding your ecosystem. Uh, for, for me, that's 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 the most powerful thing that we can do to to be adaptive to any any changes in climate you know understanding our ecosystems and seeing how it's uh it's changing and by being part of it because when we're part of it then we can take action towards um towards any changes that we might do you know like like chris was saying okay like the the corn and the beans were not working but we saw that these other trees were working well so we're going to focus on on doing this so um when you're doing when you're doing designs you, you, you try to kind of like create um, a little bit of redundancy of, of like, you know, you, you can like create some potentially sacrificial areas thinking that things might change, but you have like systems where like if something fails, the other thing is going to work. So you create systems where, where you know, you, you make sure that at least one, one or two things that, that you're doing are going to work. And then from what you notice works, then you replicate. That's, that's what I tell my clients normally. But for me, it's it's again, it's like understanding our ecosystems, right? Where we live. Um, I I always I always refer there. There's a lady in, in in I think you might met her to Cormac Claire de Gaia. She introduced me to 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 a lady called Lila June. She's a Denean Nation uh, woman, and she she says that we human beings are a keystone species. You know that Mother Mother Earth needs us uh, to enhance life on this earth. So I feel like you know it's 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 our responsibility. Yeah, we we have systems in place right now that might go against that, but that's those for me those systems are catapults for the people that actually want to do that work to rise up. You know, like if there's no like if there's no resistance, then you just stay in a comfortable place. But if there is resistance, then you find your your mission. You know, so the resistance is like the yin and the yang, right? The resistance is for that people like us rise up to that. Uh, and then if we rise too much, there's probably going to be a resistance from another place and it's, and it's going to be fine. But for me, understanding our ecosystem is the most, um, you know, the most that we can do to be, to be able to prepare ourselves for anything that might change in our ecosystems and then creating redundancy and, and resilience in our, in our systems. Right. So a place where, you know, if you, if you have a really place a place that might get flooded because of rains, how are you going to manage that all that water? You know, can you manage it in your local space or do you need to collaborate with your neighbors to, to see where that water is going to go? Um, 
yeah, how, how can you create ecosystems so you're creating more constant rain rather than creating monsoon situations? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's about understanding where, where, where we're at and, 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 and then collaborating with that ecosystem to, to enhance it and make it more resilient. That's, that's my philosophy. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And, um... and then whatever happens, happens. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, taking taking the food out of commodities and the houses out of assets and the people out of you know whatever we use that the the labor force, <laughs> uh, and getting back into is very it's a very profound change in in worldview that we're actually facing. And I think the way you you put it, Alan, is beautiful. And Lila Jude is just beautiful it's fantastic her work is just so helpful right now it's so so timely uh her ted talk is brilliant uh, as well um and by the way i just saw um half of <laughs> so i i had i no i fully recommend it um a talk with nora bateson and uh daniel schmachtenberger i hope I said his name correctly about learning to be in this world. It's a, a lot about children and about how do we teach our children to to be in this world. And and what you said, Alan, reminded me of it because it's so much about getting this in your inner uh, flexibility, like a, a, an inner balance that helps you be adaptive to change yourself, and then you can choose how to adapt to the exterior changes that you're facing and all the challenges we're most certainly going to face uh, in the coming years. Um, but such like the internal aspect of it and the internal permaculture um, is such an important aspect of adapting to, adapted to change in general. Yeah, I think that's great also. It's quite surprising, I think, because when I had looked at this, you no know, climate change, adaption, permaculture, I'd wrote a list of things like <laughs> very technical things. I'm an engineer, that's what I do. And uh, it's great that the conversations went towards people centric and community and and kids. Uh, it's a it's a probably a more powerful way of putting a message across and a positive message. Well, okay, okay. There's in the in the course. There's also a module about climate emergencies, and so being this very preppy, right? How do you make um a list of all the things that you have in your house, and how do you get be sure that you have food if water uh, if if a disaster strikes, and how do you make sure, etc. Right? Having a plan, a strategy for stuff like that. So that's one of the very important things that that people need to take into consideration. If that's um, <laughs> an, uh, uh, one aspect. And then there would be um, knowing what projections are possible and probable in your area, like really doing the research um, and understanding what, what will happen um, so that you know how to prepare better for it. And but that's again this observe and interact principle. Um, you can you can take it too many scales. Um, and then of course, timeframes, budgets, preppy, um, foods resilience, God, um, water resilience, and then low tech. Um, if energy. If energy, uh, if there's a blackout, um, your house, at least, uh, from my point of view, your house needs to be fully functional. Um, so if you have, if you if you need a fan to work for the indoor air quality to to stay constant, this when the blackout strikes, that might not be that that fan is not going to work so how do you work around that stuff like that okay that's uh two technical sense <laughs> were you going to say something there, christopher 
Um, no, I, 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 I was just thinking about, I live with solar, so we, um, uh, my wife and I do solar photovoltaic installations. We mostly do them in uh, protected areas and ranger stations. We also do schools and clinics and community centers and uh, village level uh, water pumping systems. And um, there are ways, those are ways of building in a degree of durability um, because a lot of the, all the communities, all we're doing, we don't do bat, we don't do um, grid tied. We only do battery based. And so we're only working in places where they don't have electricity. Well, we just had like four days of super overcast and my batteries got so low, I just shut everything off except for one light. Uh, it was really depressing because my wife was up here in the North visiting with her, her grandchildren. And uh, um, while I was on the farm uh, collecting the vanilla for this workshop, um, and sitting under one little 12 volt uh, light, little LED light, reading my little book at night. And, uh, uh, but I realized um, it wasn't honestly that bad because when I started out, when I first started farming, I had a candle and I would sit in a hammock and hold my book and read it like that. So um, anyway, just, just more of an anecdote than a point. And I was, I was really feeling that, that uh, I'm all proud of myself every time there's a, a, a national outage of the grid and I've still got power. I didn't have it because we had like four days of completely overcast. Uh, uh, and uh, it was pretty, it was uh, a little humbling for, for me. So um, that was basically it. Um, uh, it, it, it. It's good to be reminded that you're not, um, there's no such thing as uh, self-sufficient uh, that we're all interconnected with larger systems around us and uh, I, I've never liked the term self-sufficient but I I really felt that when I'm so proud of my little electrical system that I've gotten here I am under one light bulb trying to make sure the battery doesn't get depleted to zero so you know yeah, I like that I like that yeah I, I always never really resonated with with the, the self-sufficiency Uh I started like calling it community sufficiency, but yeah, it's actually like more like yeah, I like I like what we're talking about, um, sort of adapting what we have. Brilliance, and and I also yeah. there, there's a nice kind of like juxtaposition with like I think Joe was mentioning it before too, like kind of like slowing down, right? Like slowing down is really the solution, really. You know, connecting mm -hmm. and slowing down and, and and not being you know in this like kind of like chaotic rush of like consumption and production and all this stuff. I think like that's really the solution and then really observing and then from there acting maybe. But then there's also like the urgency, right? Of like things need to change because we're not, you're not doing things fast enough, right? There's the, that kind of like interesting ju juxtaposition that uh, I don't know, at least I feel in my life, right? Oh, I need to, I need to, I need to get these projects going because yeah, because yeah, I don't know. There's something within me that tells me that I need to get them going. But at the same time, there's a part of me that is like, we could just be living much simpler and not being stressing out about all this all the time. Like, so there's, there's an interesting concept there. And then yeah. you also were mentioning Joe about kind of like the resiliency with, with food. And for me, that looks like also like retraining ourselves with, with what we can actually eat that is like local to our ecosystems here in Costa Rica, mm. there's so many edible stuff that grows and, and probably there, Chris and, and Belize, Belize as well, that so many like edible things that were just like so Westernized that, that we don't eat anymore because they're just like, you know, indigenous diet or, or, or whatever it might be. They're just, they're, they're just like got thrown out of the window, being able to start incorporating those things in, makes it much more resilience because here in the tropics there's forest everywhere if we if we learn how to eat from the forest again there's almost like no chance that we're gonna you know run out of food in this in this ecosystem right, right? but we might run out of food just because of lack of knowledge you know because oh there's no tomatoes okay but there's a you know there's taro and there is you know and there's a chikaquil right. and there's you know <laughs> right so and i think that happens also like in, yeah and that happens in a lot of places too, right? That, you know, why are we not eating nettles all the time? Or, you know, or just, yeah. Uh, yeah, I get We were in, um, a couple of years ago, we lived in a chestnut grove. 
and uh, throughout Europe and especially France throughout the um, World War, they fed themselves on chestnuts, chestnut flour. And, and now everywhere, that, that whole region is full of chestnuts. Nobody takes them, nobody collects them, nobody does anything with them because it's not it's well it's hard to pick it's hard to you know it's hard to work with it in the current systems but um but it's such a beautiful asset to think about um and acorns are are the same even though more bitter <laughs> frankly yeah, it is it does need readjusting to readjusting tastes and levels of comfort and what we think is culturally acceptable and stuff like that yeah the, i was i was in paris and uh, i don't know exactly where i think it was in front of the u.s embassy in paris it was full of uh, chestnuts full of chestnuts on the ground just full of food full of food in, in the I, I lived in the netherlands for a bit and, and the, the way that they did it in the netherlands is they, they just like strike them and then just put them on top of like a like a fire and then they cracked open and then you just eat them so yeah. like it's 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 a little bit of work, but not so much. We 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 also had a designer in our in our team um, a while ago called Kevin Feinstein, and he was telling about the, he was he was also comparing like acorns uh, versus wheat, the processing of, of both. And acorns are actually much easier to process. You know, you, to process wheat, you still like need like all the the mechanization and all the stuff. But and to process acorns, it's it's just easier. It's just like, you know, it's it, it was taken out of culture. For some reason and we just need to like bring those things back in because there's another permaculturist that i work with he, that he was saying like every forest is a food forest you know there's, there's in the permaculture there's a concept yeah. of food forest but every forest is a, is a food forest yeah sometimes it's not so human oriented but it's providing life and also yeah you know we could just we you know we could change it a little bit for us too but there's probably a lot of food that we could eat you know if, if we if if the right knowledge and, and the knowledge is through through ancestry and through storytelling and through, you know, kind of like pagan ways that, that it got basically cut out, you know, in, in all of our lineages, they just like got like strike down through 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 oppression and power and whatever, you know, like whatever the power was at the moment, they got just like, you know, cut. And so then those storylines like kind of like got lost. But if we can bring those stories back to life, then 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 we then we create our new tribes, right? Uh it doesn't really matter that we lost them we can re-remember and we're all connected you know our our cells come from from the earth as well so you guys both touched on 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 foods uh like the acorns and uh chestnuts not being i i just i grew up in new york city and uh you see chestnuts my dad played rugby and they had chestnut trees out there and on uh, their guys would roast them um uh in the case of uh chestnuts in europe i'm um the Maya people, they don't eat Ramon nut, Brasama malacostrum, even though it is uh, nutritionally superior to corn. Uh, it produces more kilograms per hectare at an extremely favorable energy return on energy invested ratio. Uh, mazapan, uh, we call it bread nut in Belize. It's um, it's our castaña in Spanish. Um, they, they, uh, people don't eat that because they consider particularly in the case of Ramona, they consider it famine food. So there's an association that we, my grandparents ate that when yeah. the his crop failed. The same way I think that maybe in France, they don't eat it because they, they have an association. Of, oh, but we, we ate that under German occupation when there wasn't food available. Um, and so I, I, I think that the question is, how do we um, destigmatize these foods? Because some of these foods have absolutely astounding uh, uh, properties, you know, I, and uh, particularly in terms of kill, uh, energy return on energy invested. I, on, during bread nut season, I, I've probably got 14 trees bearing. Uh, I go pick up two, two five gallon buckets every single day of bread nut. Uh, we, we raised pigs. We had 16 pigs at one time that we were raising off of bread nut. Um, we eat it. Uh, we've made flour with it. We, we've done stuff with it. It's a fair amount of work in the processing. But the actual harvesting, uh, there's no need to plant it. There's no need to fertilize. There's no need to weed it. You just go pick it up with a bucket. And so how do we make these foods become more acceptable? 
Now there's a, a in in the Paten in, in Guatemala adjacent to us in Belize, uh, they have they have these women's co uh, cooperatives, and I can't remember the name of it unfortunately, um, uh, who collect and market the Ramon nut seed, uh, and they use it as an admixture for these uh, coffee substitutes. Uh, they grind it into flour and they make cookies with it. Uh, they have a cornflake substitute with it. And actually, through very clever marketing, uh, they've managed to target this sort of uh, upper middle class and upper class Guatemalan seed. And then they're they're buying it for their kids because, you know, it's from the jungle and it's better for you. And it's not GMO corn coming from, you know, Iowa or wherever. Um, and so a lot of these foods, I think if, if they could be just destigmatized de and put in a concept, even if it's only to be used as animal feed, um, instead of corn, you know, uh, so there, there's potential in there, but they involve, evolve, uh, some degree of, of marketing and education and, and to people who can't look outside the dominant paradigm. Again, it boils up back to that. Um, and so it's one of the things I really like about permaculture is that there's, uh, all the, all these pioneering people out there doing interesting things, uh, that sort of turn the dominant model upside down and so that's one of the one of the cases i see with these foods yeah and if you place them well enough around your house they can also build up your soil uh keep the sun from reflecting um heat in your house uh, act as a windbreak um Use evapotranspiration to uh, cool the air coming uh, into your house, shade your house, and many others. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Rain water droplets in the air, rain water vapor to produce some rain in the area. <laughs> Slow down the water coming onto your site. Very important. Help it one. soak into the landscape. Uh, yeah. Increasingly more important for parts of the world where drought is a problem. Yeah. Uh, retrain your mycelium. Yeah. It's it, it's in, I, I heard a I heard a concept recent like so so yeah so so then there's the paradigm of like yeah like the 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 adopters and the people that are that are that are in a way like courageous or something to take these these like different approach or relearn these these techniques, uh, and then the people that are kind of like still in the in the in the normal. You know status quo thing but then there's like so so then like there's a question i was in a regenerative entrepreneurship course and and you know we you know we have like the 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 idea of like you know big corporation are the ones that are harming the world and all this stuff but you know there was a course in there there was like actually we need to partner up with the big corporations because they're the ones that have like the leverage to actually bring this and create a mass adoption of like these techniques and there was a there were some people in 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 a, in a group in the states called Primal Pastures. I don't know if you guys know about them. They did regenerative, um, yeah, regenerative animal grazing basically, and uh, and and they and they 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 were doing really well. They were really, and, you know, they were able to create a, a niche market for themselves, and they were doing really well. And they were, you know, creating a good solutions for their ecosystem. And then they got they got uh, they they were seen by. One of these big corporations and and they actually they actually like kind of like took them in as part of like you know one of their one of their divisions let's say and what 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 the person what the owner of this of this company was saying is like like with primary pastures we we were in, innovating and it was it was great now working with this bigger corporation even though like you know there's kind of like you know philosophically it might not resonate with a lot of people working with this bigger corporation gives me access to like, you know, the smartest engineers in the topic to the best machines. And so, so any, so, and, and they let them like still be like, um, that, that, that he can like be, be like the tester, basically the re research and development department of, of that, this big company, they, they, they let them do the tests. And once, you know, they want to try a, out a test at a bigger scale, they have like all the resources to do it. Right. So, so there's like also this like way of like, okay, maybe we need to like create these like niche solutions and then like bring them to the bigger corporations and partner up with them because they have like the, you know, they have the muscle to bring this to, to, to the everyday consumer, you know? And then of course there's the balance of like not 
do it too massive that then you're again destroying now you have like you know monocrops of chestnuts everywhere so it's like okay what right. what, what, what is what is the balance there but for me that for me that was that was interesting normally they, like the big corporations are not really changing not because they don't want maybe they don't want but just because it's so you know they're so titanic that like it takes so much energy to to try to change you know it just it just they just have a direction yeah. and it's just so hard for them to like pivot but if they can like incorporate these solutions from like you know people that are doing these these uh these changes then we can then we can create this this bigger shift a quicker shift it's it's kind of like almost like the combination of both of both of these worlds for me for a long time i was like no the big corporations like it's crazy like i, I even like you know re regarding the oil and, oil and gas industry i was like oh that's the evil you know and all this stuff and then and then i read this book called the uh, plant intelligence in the imaginal realm by Stephen Harrod Buner. And he's saying like, you know, how like humanity is kind of crazy, right? Because like, we're like destroying the ecosystem that is supporting us. So there's a reality in that. But then he's telling us like, even though we're smart beings, we're not smarter than the, than, 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 than the being of mother earth. You know, we're part of it. We're part of that ecosystem or, or that many ecosystems. So we're not like, we're not the only ones creating solutions here. And he was saying, like, let, let's just say an example that, like, you know, he's, he, he took the analogy of, like, an annual plant. He's like, an annual plant, when it goes to seed, it puts all its energy to its seeds, and then, like, it dies off, right? Like, it, it, it kills itself to be able to propagate the next generation. That's, like, by design. What if, you know, Mother Earth is doing the same thing? What if, like, what if, like, Mother Earth is, like, depleting itself right now to maybe take a bacteria or something to, like, another planet? So, like, as a permaculturist or as a regenerative landscaper, I'm like, why do you want to try to go regenerate another landscape if we cannot even regenerate ours? But, like, if Mother right. Earth wants to pollinate another another, uh, another uh, planet, well, maybe this is perfect synchronicity. Well, I, I still want to be on the part of regeneration because that's what I'm passionate about. I'm not passionate about like extracting from the earth. I'm passionate about like regenerating it, but it's okay that people are extracting because maybe that's part of mother earth's plan as well. So it's a uh, kind of like puts into perspective of like, there's not really evil out there. We just need to like collaborate with whoever makes sense and then go towards solutions. Yeah, that's very, the Buddhist middle way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think with the corporations, for me, the problem is that their metrics are all off. Uh, they have a legal obligation to maximize shareholder profit. Therefore, everything else goes out the window. Uh, so we need to yeah. change that and have, well, instead of just saying we're green and we're regenerative, they have to actually have metrics. So as well as having, basically, they should have the same legal requirement to look after the environment as they should to shareholders. And at the minute, it's more to shareholders. So it's shareholder environment, shareholders straight away. Um, I, I, I just wanted to say, because while we're talking about corporations, Lush, Lush Cosmetics is an amazing company that they uh, make soap and, and body products. Uh, they source their stuff ethically. Um, they donate to amazing projects, including... Uh, put myself as lower end of amazing projects. Uh, they, they've assisted us uh, on and off for a few years to do training and also um, uh, a book that I'm working on. Um, and I, I really, I, I wish more companies had shareholders who would say, hey, we can be ethical. We, we can uh, take some of our profit and, and plow it into the good of the, the earth. Um, and I just want to pimp Lush because I, I, I truly love what they do. And they, they're absolutely amazing company yeah it's good to point out them so, examples i just that that was all we were talking about corporations i know one good corporation were you saying something there joe as well um about uh well huh um, when you talk about corporations, there's also, and, the, you know, metrics, 
there's this idea floating around about putting metrics on nature and putting nature putting metrics on ecosystems and measuring stuff like impact and it's the like it's again the philosophical thing um how do you, nature is if you embrace the complexity of nature in all its infinity then it is quite obvious from the onset that you're never going to be able to put numbers on that that you can build kpis on right and you can't put like you can put a credit on carbon like what use is that going to have the, the complexity of nature is so much bigger. It's like, if only we had more data. No, no, there isn't any amount of data that's, you know, big enough to encompass the whole of nature, all of Gaia, right? And I know it sounds hippie and all, but there's, it. I feel like there's this trend of putting numbers on nature so that we can incorporate them into the numbers of corporations and and i i have a tension about that i really do yeah that's that's why that's why that, you know that's 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 kind of like a kind of like a globalization like you know way of way of seeing things it's like what what makes sense where do the investments make sense where's like the, re the flow of resources make sense so yeah all the numbers are, are for that at the end of the day um so so that's why we need to also change the paradigm of like focusing more local like when yeah. you're local, you can actually see solutions that that you don't have to like have numbers for, right? Like in my house, I have an ecosystem that used to be a gra grassland. It didn't house any life. I had to cut it every 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 two the, the, weeks. The easiest easier metrics to quantify. Sorry. And uh, and now I have you know now I have a, a food forest I, that gives gives me some food, and now I see like different birds coming in. So it's not really quantifiable. It, but but I can see the change, you know. I can, I can actually see the expression of the change, and 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 the more resilient that this ecosystem is based on what it, it was before. So, yeah, and like you're saying, how many like in this little piece, how many variables could I start putting into the in the equation? It's like impossible to to do. If I like birds, maybe I can start putting like, oh yeah, I saw this bird and I saw this other bird and I saw this yeah. other bird, but I cannot be have all the variables. And also you can trust your instinct uh, because you, it's something that you can hold. Um, I mean, your mind can hold the rela its relationship with that ecosystem, with that scale of a place. That's right. Uh, whereas when it gets too big, it gets completely out of scale and out of our p p p um, possibilities with, uh, within, our, within our heads. We can't hold that much complexity. Christopher, were you saying something when you cut off? Well, yeah, sorry. My my timing is bad. All of a sudden, I'm, I start talking, and then the loop catches, and you guys are talking. Um, so I don't mean to interrupt anybody. I'm rude in general, and uh, but I didn't mean to be today. Uh, and uh, uh, one of the things is the metrics that 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 need to be measured is what are what what is the cost of eliminating these ecosystem services that we depend on. Uh, and that's actually really uh, a lot easier for uh, these economists to tabulate because it's like, okay, uh, what what is a landslide cost? What is a, a water table that disappears cost? What 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 is uh, what is a wildfire cost? And all of these are consequences of actions. And so I I think that um, as uh, one of the ways to measure whether any project is viable is uh, what, what are gonna be the damage to the, the ecosystem commons that we depend on? Um, and it, it, there's not a lot of that being done um, because the dominant, again, the dominant paradigm in economics is extractive uh, and it boils down to that equation. Cost of labor and inputs over here and capitalization amortized over time if kilograms per hectare uh, value uh, is exceeded over there, it's, it's profitable even though Technically, it's not profitable because it's just being subsidized by ecosystem services. Um, and so I wish there was more discussion about that. I have some friends of mine who are uh, sort of classic economists, and um, and often they they seem to miss uh, that the, the ecosystem services have values that are like are actually quantifiable. They're difficult to quantify, but just remove them 
and all of a sudden you're going to get an understanding of how valuable they are. So, yeah. Yeah, there, there was my, a, my little thought. Yeah, there's a podcast in the and another podcast uh, called in, Investing in, in Regenerative Agriculture. Who is who is a I think it's, he's a Dutch guy, uh, Kuhn. And he interviewed a guy called Charlie Cummings, and uh, basically they they talk about um, that that right whenever whenever people are are, are considering like costs and, and economics and accounting, you know, a lot of people like say like they go into like yeah I'm just gonna buy a regular piece of potato because it's cheaper than the organic, you know, I cannot afford the organic, but like if they're actually right. comparing you know, comparing like the actual cost of things, like for example, a non-organic potato is probably subsidized or, or a non-organic corn is subsidized. So you're paying taxes for it as well. Then, you know, you're, it's creating these, like it's creating the medical bills, it's creating these right. uh, weather events or, you know, or, or social uh, um, unrest that is creating costs for the region. And now if you compare those two, you're like, oh yeah, no, the cost is you know, better if I buy this, this other one that is regenerating the land. So it, it, that, that part of the cost and the financial piece, I think is, is, is really important too. And yeah, in, in you normally are comparing what you see in the supermarket here and what you see in the supermarket here and what you spend right. in that moment, you're not comparing like all the implications of like, kind of like costs that come from the side and, uh, right. and all, all the consequences, the, the costs that are consequences of doing one thing one way or, or another. Yeah, that might be cheaper, but have you cost uh, uh, looked at the cost of chemotherapy recently? Yeah, you know. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah, I think that's the difficulty, though, when you're a single mother at home with four children and limited money, she's buying the cheapest stuff. She's not. Exactly. That's why this this ruse of car individual carbon footprint that we've been, you know, we've been having this discussion for the last 10 years. It's your individual responsibility because you're the one who's supposed to act as a consumer and choose better. Who can afford that? Nobody can afford that. Right. Especially the young mother with the, the one, the single mother uh, who's in the aisles of the supermarket. It's how can you tell that woman that it's her responsibility <laughs> Um, and, so and it the, is about changing the systems. It definitely yeah. is. And, and the yeah, same. Show, show. Uh, sorry, Alan, the same people that are telling that it's your individual carbon footprint are the same ones that are going, right, I've got a fracking contract. <laughs> yeah. Let's have an auction. <laughs> uh, sorry, Alan, go ahead there. No, I think that's, 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 I think that's right. It's about changing. It's about changing the system. But you know, the system is easier changed if all the numbers are put in the table and and you know people are educated well around it. You know, so then it's like, hey, like people can like with their voting or with their you know with their influence, they can be like, even though I'm buying the cheapest, I, I know that it's not the cheapest because I'm paying my money in taxes to subsidize this thing here, and I'm paying this medical bill. You know. Uh, that if I was eating right, I wouldn't have to pay. So then you 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 can you know create. But yeah, when when you don't when you're blinded to that, then you cannot change because you're like, oh, I'm just going to buy the cheapest because that's all I can afford. Yeah. So the best climate adaptation is climate action. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> At the system level. At the system level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, oh, I, I want to. I'd like to plug uh, right now the beautiful project that I've been involved with for, for the past two years is a whole all voluntary project it's called connecting the carbon dots it's under the carbon almanac a project that was led uh, by Seth Godin uh, and turned into a book and from that we turned uh, the solutions and the issues in uh, the book into a graph to show how it's all connected um, and in there we have actionables that are at these three levels, the level of in individual, the level of the collective, and the systemic level. And I feel it's so important right now for us, all of us, to make the step towards activating ourselves and changing the systems and not falling for the, you know, we're going to change light bulbs uh, ruse that uh, has been sold to us for so long. Um, so that's at uh, thecarbonalmanac.org slash connect dots. Nice.
and and I think it ties to what we were talking at the beginning of like into integrating ourselves where we're at, right? We don't have to, you know, go create, try to create this this magical reality for ourselves. It's like where are you at, what are your circles of influence? How can you share this information there? Make yourself make yourself a service to to showcase, to teach, to receive as well, because it's about all of us learning from each other. And uh, yeah, and then take steps from there. Yeah, make places better one by one. Because there's a lot of us. Yeah, more and more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, guys, this has been a fascinating discussion. Do you just want to have a quick, we'll go around the circle again there just for any final words. Uh, we, we can wrap us up. Uh, Joe, do you want to start? Um, yes, I would like to uh, thank you all uh, three of you for this in, uh, surprising conversation because we drifted way, way far from what <laughs> we thought we were going to, to be discussing. Uh, it was really um, so much fun. Thanks. Christopher? Uh, we, uh, thank you very much for having me, Cormac, Joe, and Alan. It was wonderful uh, spending this time with you. I really appreciate it. I'm always happy when I'm in a room full of smart people uh, doing amazing things. So uh, an honor and a privilege to be here with you. Alan? Yeah. Uh, second, uh, Chris and Joe's words. Very, very happy to be with all of you and share this conversation. And um, yeah. I'm I'm excited about I'm excited about the future. I have three kids, you know, and uh, I just I'm excited about what's going to happen. And and even if it, you know, I know there's a lot of strife and, and struggle in the world, and and the people are going through through hard times. So I acknowledge that, and you know, I in a way I'm in a, in a privileged position because I I don't I don't have to live through that. Uh, I think there's exciting things that are coming for 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 humanity and things that we can look up for and things that we can do about, right? That's what Lila June does. We, we are like the generators. We are connected to this, to this earth and we, and, and we need to take act. We need to be responsible and, and take, take actual action on, on it. You know, it, it is a responsibility as human beings to participate in this, in this dance. That's great. Thank you uh, guys. Thanks very much. And for those listening, if he's like that, if you'd like to subscribe, there's more of these conversations coming up. Uh, one relative to this as well, we have one coming up on uh, permaculture and alternative uh, markets or economies, which as well ties into this very well that you don't have to go and buy the, buy the grocery store all the time, chip on your neighbours, things like that. Guys, I think we yeah. left with some very practical steps there as well and some encouragement and positivity for people as well. It's not all doom and gloom that Humans have been here for thousands of years, and I think things will change, but we're going to have to change both of them just. Thanks very much, guys. Cheers. Cheers.